Hey, greetings, and welcome to Categorical Imperatives. Uh, this is, of course, the podcast where we use legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events as it relates to various aspects of law, politics, and culture. And right now, uh, I am joined by the great Mike Meharry of the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, he's agreed to come on and uh, give me some of his time so we can talk about uh, uh, voting uh, with this big presidential election coming up and why uh, we shouldn't be relying on voting for those of us who are interested in politics, uh, specifically to expand liberty, uh, and then to also talk with him about some uh, uh, some alternatives and practical things, hopefully, that we can do that can move the needle closer, uh, closer towards liberty. Uh, so real quick here, uh, Mike uh, serves as the uh, National Communications Director for the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, he is the managing editor of the Shift Gold website. Uh, he hosts his own podcast, Thoughts from Meharry Head, uh, as well as the Friday Gold Wrap podcast and It's Your Dime interview series, both for Shift Gold. Uh, he is the author of four books, including the Constitution Owner's Manual, which for my money is one of the best books on the Constitution I've ever read, uh, as well as uh, Our Last Hope, Discovering the Lost Path to Liberty, uh, smashing myths and nullification objections. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you about elections. Yeah. So, um, I, I'm wondering, do you, uh, just real quick before we get into that, uh, do you want to maybe let people know just a little bit about uh, who you are and and kind of uh, how you got into the Liberty community or what you do or what you're interested in is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm the communications director for the 10th Amendment Center. And for folks who aren't familiar with the organization, we are focused on the Constitution. Our mantra is follow the Constitution every issue, every time, no exceptions, no excuses. So uh, we're, we're pretty hard about this uh, constitutional fidelity thing. And we do basically kind of two paths of work. One is education, and that really just involves teaching people what the original Constitution meant, uh, what the powers of the federal government are actually supposed to be, and uh, unfortunately demonstrating how far the current system has drifted away from the, uh, the system that the founders envisioned. And then we also do activism, and we work at the state and local level to actually devolve power away from the federal government to block unconstitutional federal actions uh, through a process that is often called nullification, uh, which is just a fancy term for saying no. Our primary strategy is uh, is basically getting state and local governments to say, look, we don't have to cooperate with the federal government. The federal government cannot force us to use our resources or our personnel uh, for their ends, and therefore we're not going to. 
And so uh, it, it's kind of a an issue by issue strategy to bring power back to a more state and local level. And personally, that's I feel like centralized power is the biggest threat to liberty that we face. Uh, I, I feel like all government is going to infringe upon our rights. All government can be dangerous, but centralized government is worse than uh, decentralized government. I'd rather deal with a local government or a state government than the federal government because I have some modicum of control and influence at, at a smaller level than I do at the federal level. So that's kind of kind of the background of the Tenth Amendment Center. Personally, I came into the uh, the so-called liberty movement about a decade ago, and, and I was one of those people that got kind of caught up in the um, the Tea Party movement. I was a pretty mainstream Republican, Rush Limbaugh kind of guy. Uh, but I always had this sense, again, that limited government was important and Republicans were supposed to be limited government people that uh, <laughs> I've learned since that, that, that that's not necessarily the case. But uh, yeah, they, they, that kind of led me limited government. Yeah, exactly. They, they've got the rhetoric down down pat. Yeah. But uh, I got involved. I wanted to do something more than just going to a Tea Party rally or a meeting and uh, started kind of searching around and ran across the Tenth Amendment Center. And I thought, well, these guys seem pretty cool and they're doing some good stuff and uh, volunteered to be a, a state chapter coordinator back in the day. And here I am 10 years later, still doing it. So uh, pretty, pretty excited. I feel like I feel like the work that we're doing uh, is some of the best practical application politically that that's going on out there today. Yeah, and, and I really would have to uh, agree uh, when I look for people. Uh, out there who are doing things who are making a practical difference. So many people are are focused, and, and this gets perfectly into what we're going to talk about today. They're focused on getting the right person elected, uh, or they're they're you know getting the Republican into office, or about trying to help get the Libertarian Party five percent, or or you know things like that. <laughs> um, and so you guys, a lot of the work that you do uh, with nullification is uh, fantastic, and and just getting. Showing states that they have the power to say no, um, right? So we'll get into that in a little bit too. But uh, first, let's uh, maybe kind of get into uh, voting and talking about why uh, putting our hopes in, uh, you know, electing the right president or electing the right senator um, is it's why it's not a very good way uh, to count on expanding liberty. And. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's the natural impulse, right? I mean, that's what we're taught. If you want to make a change, then you got to vote the right people in office. And, uh, you know, I'm 53 years old, so I've seen a lot of elections. And, and every one, I think, in the last 20 or 30 years has been the most important election of my lifetime. <laughs> and yet nothing has changed substantively. And Michael Bolden really kind of made me think about this when I first started working with the 10th Amendment Center. Michael's the uh, founder and the executive director. And, and this was, uh, I think it was, I don't remember which election it was. It was early on. It might have been, uh, might have been 20, I don't remember. Doesn't matter. One of the earlier presidential elections. And, uh, and Michael Bolden said that no matter who gets elected, four years later, the federal government is going to be bigger, more powerful, deeper in debt, and infringing on more of your rights. And, and that's proven true with every president that's gone past. And uh, but but again, we're it's like the old adage. Uh, who was it? Einstein is a 
attributed to saying that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That's federal elections, it seems like. Right. And, and that's uh, a, a big thing for me, too, actually, uh, that brought me into the liberty movement. Um, I, I was uh, up until around 2008, I, w- I was very left. I mean, like I was a, a active Green Party member. Um, and I know that I uh, was a, a really a big supporter of Obama because uh, he was mm-hmm. he was saying all the right things. Uh, he right. Saying, hope you know, and change. Yeah, hope and change. Yeah. Well, and, and we're going to end this unconstitutional spine and we're going to end this mm-hmm. deficit spending. In the wars. And, yeah, in the war. Yeah, his, his thing, my, my first move on my first day in office will be to bring the troops home. Um, and, and so I remember really kind of believing that. And then as I became more disenfranchised with it, remembered this guy named Ron Paul, who I listened to a few times, mm-hmm. and who was the only person who I heard say, you know, this change isn't going to come. And, you know, it's not even as o- if it's Obama's fault. It's just, you know, this change is not going to come. And he's one of the only people I've ever heard say that. And it really uh, struck me at the time, for sure. Yeah. I've got an analogy that I, I used to use a lot when I was doing a lot of public speaking. And of course, back when Obama was president, uh, a lot of people on the right were really gung ho about, you know, limited government and constitutional fidelity and all of those things. Now, since they became Trump supporters and, and they've got the power, that's disappeared from the face of the earth. Right. But um, I used to speak to a lot of Tea Party groups. And one of the things that I would say, is that the system is the problem. The system is broken. If you look at the constitutional system, it was intended to be limited. There's no debating that. I mean, uh, every founder said that the federal government was supposed to have limited powers, that most of the authority was supposed to be at the state and local level, and even the individual level. That was the system. And if you look at it today, it's completely flipped on its head. The federal government dictates almost everything that we do. I mean, it even dictates how much water we flush down our toilet. Uh, yeah. This is hardly the definition of a limited government. And, and you look at these things, you, you know, take something like the spying. Clearly, all of this spying is unconstitutional with any uh, plain reading of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, the wars are unconstitutional. We haven't had an actual declared war since World War II. Um, so, so many of these things that the government is doing are clearly outside of the bounds of the Constitution. This is going to continue no matter who the president is. And I, the analogy that I used, it's like a car and it's broken down and it's up on blocks and there's no tires on it. And you're going to fix it by putting in a new driver. <laughs> right. It, it, the car's not going anywhere. I don't care who you put in there, you know. And even Ron Paul, I loved Ron Paul, but Ron Paul, I think he didn't even have illusions that he was going to change the system. He no, believed yeah. he was trying to he was trying to uh, give us a message and uh and and change the way people think about things and he was certainly successful in that. Uh, one of the most yeah. successful people ever. But um, in terms of, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid that if he had been elected president, he, the momentum of the system would have carried him along. And, and of course, you've got Congress and and the judiciary that is steeped in this broken constitutional system. So this is why yeah. I just feel like it's a waste of time. And I understand why people do it. You know, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic because that's what we're taught. You know, that's where we feel like we have control. We can go to the voting booth and we can pull a lever for some dude. And, and we, and we feel like we're at least accomplishing something, but 
over the years, I've discovered that uh, we're much better off if we're going to focus that kind of energy. If you want to, if you want to do electoral politics, and I'm I'm pretty disillusioned even at, at the state and local level. But if you're going to do local politics, at least focus it down where uh, you can actually make more of a substantive difference. Because uh, some of the state systems, you can actually get something done. Is whereas unless you're a big money lobbyist. You're not going to change Washington, D.C. You're not going to get your congressman to pay attention to you or your senator. And the president certainly doesn't care what you have to say. No. Yeah. And, and um, it, it, I have to believe that that's uh, at least part of why we see uh, often Republicans and Democrats are so opposed to getting rid of the public school system is, I mean, that's mm-hmm. really, that is that is their place to lock people in and teach them that no matter what this problem is, government is always a solution. If there's a problem, you just don't have enough of us yet, you know? <laughs> yeah, and we, and we we see the results of that. You know, for every, for every government solution, there's a bigger problem. I, I just... I spend a lot of time focused on on economic issues with my work over at Shift Gold and just looking at the way the government has responded to the to the COVID-19, even setting aside the the civil liberties issues of, of shutting down the entire society, just looking at the the spending and the stimulus and the Federal Reserve money that's being pumped into the system, all this is going to have horrible consequences and you know the the solution for that in in a year or two is well well, we need more government programs it's like no you broke it in the first place yeah exactly we just need a real like trump because it's not he 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 caused this at all or any yeah yeah right you know it's interesting you're thinking about this you know you're going back to uh what was it about a year year and a half ago when we were talking about impeachment uh gosh it seems like centuries ago right right um but you know I told people, like, you're so excited about impeaching Donald Trump, you're going to get Pence. I mean, how is that an upgrade? <laughs> I, don't, I mean, yeah. he's going to do the same thing. He might look better doing it, you know, but his Twitter feed certainly <laughs> wouldn't be as interesting. So, um, yeah, it's it's just really interesting the, the way that, that, that people process politics. But, you know, in, in some ways, and I think you're right, because it's ingrained into us from the time that we're in elementary school, uh, that this is how the system works and people are so ingrained to it that it, it becomes part of our, almost like part of our existence. It's almost a religious dogma. And yeah. suggesting to people that, you know what, you really don't need to go out and vote for president. People's heads explode. People get very angry with me when I say that. And they're like, what do you mean? You're part of the problem. <laughs> okay, well, you say yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, but the thing is, you know, if I'm not voting, I'm not the one who caused this. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost the exact right, opposite. Right. You know, the, the voting people are part of the problem. They're the ones who had a hand in this, really. So, right, exactly. I mean, and, and yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know if you want to get into the philosophical uh, aspect of voting. And I'm, you know, there, there are people that make a pretty compelling case for not voting at all in terms of, uh, you know, you're in, in a sense giving consent to the system if you cast a vote. And yeah. then there's the whole idea that, that from the, you know, kind of the, the really hardcore anarchist libertarian position that voting is violence, that you're in, in effect uh, authorizing people to commit violence on others, uh, you know, whether it's extorting money from them or, or through the police state or whatever by, by voting. And I don't really go that far. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not an anti-voter, but, 
I think there's some, there is some, those arguments should be listened to, but, you, but if you try to tell that to your average person on the street, they'll, they'll look at you like you have three horns on your head and, um, uh, you know, you're, you're, um, you're violating the civic religion, I guess. And it's some t- sort of blasphemy. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, a perfect analogy that it's like a religious experience. Cause it, I mean, I just, I, I can imagine, you know, walking up to someone who has an unshakable faith in God and, you know, just saying God doesn't exist. I, I mean, that seems like a very upsetting thing for someone to have to try, right. you know, to try and process. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and yeah, I, I guess really the only thing, uh, as as far as voting, that I was kind of thinking as you said this, that uh, is that uh, the really almost the only reason I vote uh, is because it keeps me active and eligible for uh, for jury duty, uh, and, and <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I don't know, but I think one of the the best things we can do uh, is take part in jury nullification. I mean, that is a way Absolutely. to really to really just stick it to the system. I, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, we know he did this, but it was a nonviolent crime, you know, not guilty. If, if you can get something right. like that. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and like I said, I'm not anti-voting and, and I certainly leave the door open to vote in, uh, in local elections uh, and, and certainly ballot referendums where you have single issues and, and can vote up and down. I'm in Florida now, and, and there are a lot of constitutional amendments that come up on the ballot. Um, and, you know, things like that, I think, are, are important and, and can, you know, bring about progress. I think a lot of the states that have legalized marijuana over the years have done that through ballot initiatives. So uh, it, it can be a powerful force and it can be a good force for change. And, and I'm not even against electoral politics. And and I don't fault anybody for you know running for Congress or, or even for running for president because I think it creates a platform as we saw with Ron Paul. So yeah. you know, it's not a philosophical stand for me. It's a practical stand. I have limited amount of time and energy that I can invest into the political system. I would rather spend that energy and time investing in things that I think can bring about real practical changes, or at least has a chance, uh, as opposed to, you know, depending on Donald Trump or, or Joe Biden to to fix the system. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, and, you know, it's, it's interesting when, and, and this is part of, I guess, getting red-pilled, um, so to speak, is that you start to, when you step back from the system, you start to see it in a completely different light. And, and you realize that when you really boil it all down, if you take Biden and you take Trump and you put them side by side and you look at their various positions and what they're going to actually do in terms of governing, you're going to end up with maybe a 6% difference. When right, when it really yeah. comes down to it, when it comes down to a war, when it comes down to spying on you, when it comes down to uh, you know your civil liberties, those types of things, when it comes to government spending, you know they might spend the money on different things, but they're still going to spend the money. Uh, right. It, it's it's a matter of degrees, and I've said this before. The two party system in the United States is like a coin. It's two sides of the same coin, and they might look different on the surface, and they might be a little different. But I mean, let's get really radical. You know, let's get off of that. Uh, as Tom Woods likes to say, the three by five index card of allowable opinion. Right. Um, for sure. There's not that much difference between a Trump and a and a and a Biden, other than you know the the trappings and. Uh, the surface. And, and, you know, in some ways, I think Trump has been good for people that in that he stripped the veneer off of the presidency. Yeah, um, definitely. The truth of the matter is, is if you look at 
the way he acts and, and the things that he says, all of the politicians think those things. <laughs> They're just oh, sophisticated absolutely. enough not to say them in public. It's right. really, uh, have you ever watched, did you ever see the, uh, the um, Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam? Oh yeah. 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 So, so you, you saw these things where they would take like Lyndon Johnson and in, in his private conversations and, and you'd hear him talking about how, you know, we can't win this war and, and, and everything's hopeless. And then he gets on TV, we're winning this war. You right. know, you see the, the duplicity and the BS that is in politics. Trump just puts that all out front. So I think that's kind of fun. Yeah, that is kind of interesting for <laughs> sure. It, it, yeah. And that the only thing that ever made me want to, uh, vote for trump as someone who is i think that guy milo the real right-wing guy uh said something about uh a vote for trump is a vote for fun and i think there has been some truth <laughs> to that I, I i mean it has really uh been enjoyable watching him just go out there like a wrecking ball but i yeah. I, I mean yeah. <laughs> it's certainly not good government that's for sure though no and it and it's not really it's not going to bring about liberty uh, other than no. the fact that maybe it maybe it has made some people more uh willing to listen to those of us who want to give a completely different message and say look we need to do something that's outside of this system if you really want to have a better society uh, you need to look outside of this two-party duopoly in Washington, D.C. Uh, it really yeah. is a swamp. I mean, you know, it, Trump wasn't wrong about that, but he just, you know. He's part of it. He, he, yeah, he's part of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and that's what's been really interesting has been uh, watching the people on the left who uh, for years would, you know, people like us who will talk about uh, nullification and things like that and states' rights and will be called all kinds of things, racist and whatever. And all of a sudden, yeah. watching all these same people embracing states' rights and, and watching, uh, you know, mayors and, and governors, uh, you know, have the sanctuary cities for immigration or, right. uh, you know, just all kinds of stuff like this. And, and unfortunately, I, I don't think that they're uh, faith in the in in federalism as a tool for change will last beyond Trump, unfortunately. But it's, right. it's been really interesting to see the people, uh, in a certain sense, uh, see at least at certain points, kind of embrace some of the things that uh, someone like yourself or like I would advocate for. Sure. And on the flip side of it, you should see the nasty emails I get from Trump supporters. You oh, know, really? the the people that the people that were our huge supporters. Uh, back, you know, five, 10 years ago, uh, these people are now angry. The Tea Party people, the people that started a movement based on being taxed enough already, based on worried about spending, now get mad at me and send me nasty emails if I suggest that Trump is spending too much money. Right, it's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely crazy. And, and you're right. There's, a, there's been this complete flip. Uh, in the political circle. Now, the thing that gives me hope is I think every time this happens, people peel off. So yeah. a lot of your people, a lot of the folks on the left will flip right back once their people are in charge and they'll go right back to centralizing. But I think there will be some, and I've talked to some of these folks that, that seem to have gotten it on, on a more visceral level, uh, that that they will they will stick with us. And then, of course, the you know the right wing will become the, the party of the 10th Amendment and the limited government, and I'll be a racist again. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think there is some, some value there in that uh, I, I think I've... Uh, brought a few really like anti-gun people around to a very pro second amendment message just um 
I, cause, I mean, they're the people who have been saying for the longest time, like, well, that was, you know, that was written at another point in history. And you don't think the federal mm-hmm. government is going to be sending, you know, armed troops, in, you know, into our cities, you, you know, to oppress. It's like, well, what are they doing right now? You know? Um, yeah, exactly. I, mean, I mean, Trump is seriously and I, I live in Minneapolis, kind of where the epicenter of all this is. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, watching uh, just like these cities get destroyed. I, I don't know. So it's it's been very interesting. I, I, I think um, I, I mean, obviously, destruction is terrible and I, I wish it wasn't happening. But at the same time, yeah, I think it is situations like these that can bring a little change for the better. So. I, I don't mean yeah, to make kind, kind of, of yeah uh yeah what is that uh, I don't mean to make like a, a broken window fallacy analogy here but I mean I, right. I I think there is maybe some benefit right well it stirs people's up and and it, and, it, and it breaks them out of the complacent thinking that we all walk through our day to day lives and um, you know certainly 2020 has done that between a, a pandemic. And uh, and and now the civil unrest. I, I told my wife I, actually just a few minutes ago we were talking, and I said uh, I said all we need now to complete twenty twenty is a war and a natural disaster. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh my. Yeah, that's about it. Shit. Right. Um. So. Uh, so I wanted to uh, uh, kind of uh, find our way into uh, uh, nullification and. Uh, uh, practical things that we can do. And so I wanted to uh, uh, run this quote by you and just kind of see what you think of it, because I, I think this is uh, very close to sort of what, what you guys and you and Michael at the Tenth Amendment Center are about. Um, uh, this is a quote from Thomas Jefferson, uh, where he says, quote, in cases of abuse of the delegated powers, the members of the general government being chosen by the people, a change by the people would be the constitutional remedy. But where powers are assumed which have not been delegated, a nullification is the rightful remedy. And uh, do you want to maybe kind of use that as a jumping point into the difference between voting versus taking real productive action? Yeah, absolutely. So that quote comes from the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, um, a, a document that completely changed my worldview. Uh, it's interesting when I first got involved with the Tenth Amendment Center. You know, I knew what the Tenth Amendment was, uh, and I recognized that it was uh, supposed to tell us that the federal government was supposed to exercise limited powers. Uh, when I started working for the Tenth Amendment Center, I had no idea that there was any mechanism to enforce the Tenth Amendment, and Jefferson gives us that. Jefferson and Madison both. Uh, in these resolutions that were passed in 1798. So you read from the Kentucky Resolution, which was penned by Jefferson. And then James Madison penned a similar resolution that was passed in Virginia a few months later uh, called the Virginia Resolution. And, uh, and, and Madison kind of put it another way. He said that when the federal government oversteps its bounds, uh, the it's the duty of the states. He said the states are duty bound to step in and and essentially stop the evil. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but he used those words duty bound and he did use the word evil. Uh, he called these types of usurpations evil. And these resolutions were in uh, response to the uh, Alien and Sedition Act, which, you know, we're basically what 10 years out of uh, the constitution being ratified and the federal government has already grossly overstepped its bounds. Uh, the 
the Sedition Act was probably the worst of the Alien and Sedition Acts, and it essentially yeah. criminalized some types of political speech. So this is what Jefferson and Madison were reacting to. And the question was, when the federal government does this, when you have all of the branches colluding together, you have the judiciary, the executive, and the legislative branch, and they're all violating the Constitution, what do we do? And that was when Jefferson said nullification is the rightful remedy. Yeah. But the question is, what, you know, what what does that mean? And they never really spelled it out. They made the case in those resolutions that that ultimately the states have the power uh, in the American system, that it's not a national government, that it is a union of sovereign states. They make that case very well in these uh, documents. And I highly recommend folks to read them. You can Google Kentucky oh, yeah. and Virginia resolutions. It'll take you maybe 30 minutes to read both of them. And, and again, to, when I read them the first time, it completely changed my political worldview. I'm like, how, how am I a relatively well-educated person that has taken advanced history, never heard of this stuff? Um, it, it's, it's an amazing explanation of the constitutional system, but still leaves the question, how do you do nullification? And interestingly, Madison actually gave us that blueprint in the federal uh, Federalist Papers, Federalist Number 46. And yeah. that question came up. You know, They were arguing that the federal government was supposed to be limited. And opponents of the Constitution were saying, well, how do you keep it limited? What if the federal government doesn't want to be limited? And Madison said that, that there were a number of steps that people could take in order to hold the federal government in check. And you'll find these in Federalist 46. And uh, several of the things are, are things that we normally think of in politics, uh, you know, protests. And uh, he talked about executive, the uh, governors protesting the federal government. But that the one key thing that Madison said was a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. And those are the exact words that he used, a refusal to cooperate with the officers of the union. And he said, and if a single I'm sorry, I was going to say I have it right, right, actually. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Sh should an unwarrantable measure of the federal government be unpopular in particular states, or even a warrantable measure be so, the means of opposition to it are powerful and they are at powerful hand. Powerful and at hand. The disquietude of the people and perhaps the refusal to cooperate with officers of the union would oppose in a state very serious impediments. And were the sentiments of the several adjoining states happen to be in the union would present obstructions which the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. Yep. Obstructions that the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. So what does this mean? It means that if states and localities and ultimately individuals refuse to act, it becomes very difficult for the federal government to do anything. And it's interesting that Madison wrote this at a time when the federal government was conceived to be relatively small. If you look at all of the things the federal government does today, it depends on state and local action to do virtually everything that it does. Yeah. When states and localities don't do those things, it becomes increasingly difficult for the federal government to act. That's the whole concept behind the sanctuary city. They're not blocking immigration enforcement. They're just not helping. And by right. not helping, and, they're blocking. Right. Yeah. When I when I explain that to people and I say, you know, no, this isn't just being obstinate. I mean, this is a constitutional doctrine. This is the anti-commandeering doctrine. I mean, this is something yes, that, is, exactly. that is that is upheld. Um, it, 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 people just can't believe that. It, it, yeah. Yeah. There's five Supreme Court cases have have developed this anti-commandeering doctrine. Uh, the first one goes all the way back to 1842, Prigg versus Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, which was actually a fugitive slave case. 
And uh, it's interesting because Joseph Story, who who was really in favor of national government, he was really the he was really the first one to articulate that when the federal government is trying to do something and, and fulfill its federal role, that it cannot commandeer the states. It cannot force the states to participate in that. It's the federal government's job. Therefore, the federal government has to do it. And ironically, he made that decision hoping that it would expand the federal government, that, uh, <laughs> that you know, in order, to, yeah. in order to bring in more fugitive slaves, they would be able to expand the federal government. It would be more powerful. Uh, but ultimately, he set the foundation for this doctrine that really gave the state and localities a great deal of power. And it's been built upon uh, I think the most uh, pivotal case was in 1996, Prince versus U.S., which was uh, relating to the Brady gun bill. And yeah. in that bill, sheriffs were going to be required to help uh, register these these weapons. And uh, Sheriff Prince, and then also Sheriff Mack in Arizona, sued the federal government and said, "Look, I, we're not your we're not your lackeys. You know, if you yeah. want to have a registry, do it yourself. You can't make us." And, and uh, the court actually upheld that. And then it was most recently upheld in a, a gambling case, NCAA uh, versus the name I can't remember. Uh, but in, in effect, uh, it reiterated the fact that the federal government cannot force the states to legislate in its, uh, in its, on its behalf. So, yeah. yeah, you're right. This is absolutely set in stone. And this is why, despite all of the rhetoric and despite all of the wailing and gnashing of teeth, Trump has not been able to stop the sanctuary city movement because they can't. The, right, the exactly. state and localities have the absolute power not to do that. And you can take that that strategy and you can apply it to virtually anything. Uh, and and we tell the gun people all the time, you know, quit complaining and s- stop enforcing the federal gun laws, you know. Mm-hmm. And actually, Idaho Idaho has passed passed a bill back in two thousand. It was either 16 or 17 uh, that prohibited enforcement of any future federal gun control. So any federal gun control that was passed after the the date of that bill uh, will not be enforced by the state of Idaho. So ostensibly, Mm -hmm. Idaho is not enforcing the federal uh, bump stop ban because that was. And I I thought they had gone even further in Idaho. Like I thought they had nullified past law too, uh, or past federal law at least. They just just did future. Okay. there was there was a bill in Missouri that was pending this year that has actually gained a lot of oh, momentum. Yeah. It had eighty seven co sponsors in the House, and unfortunately, the uh, whole COVID thing is had, had derailed that. So maybe we'll see that move along next year. But it's the same principle, and you can apply it to anything. Uh, and, and the best example, obviously, is marijuana. You know, the federal government will still tell you that marijuana is absolutely prohibited in the United States for any purpose and any reason. Yeah. Uh, 33 states now have legal uh, mar- uh, legal marijuana programs, uh, whether they be medical or, uh, in the case of 11 states, complete recreational um, marijuana legalization. So, you know, yeah. I can drive down if, – if I have a medical marijuana card, which I do, I can actually drive down to the store and go pick up marijuana, and nice. this is completely illegal according to the federal government. Uh, the problem with the federal government has is it can't enforce it. When you have 33 states not enforcing your will, the federal government can't do it. They don't have the, right. the, the manpower. They don't have the resources and the personnel. And I can give you an example. Back when Colorado legalized, medical, uh, legalized marijuana for recreational purposes, right before that was going to go into effect, like two or three weeks, the DEA conducted this huge raid in Denver 
on, I think it was 12 medical marijuana dispensaries. And basically it was a big arm flexing thing. You know, we're going to show them that we still have control over this. Okay. Yeah. So they shut down these 12 dispensaries and as it turns out, they made a huge deal out of this. I mean, it was in the news and, you know, it was like like the, one of the biggest simultaneous federal drug, blah, blah, blah. As it turns out, there are about 400 at the time. There were about 400 (laughs) medical marijuana dispensaries in Denver. And if you do the math, there's actually figures that will tell you how much money it costs to uh, put together a, a marijuana raid and then prosecute it. And I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but in effect, in order to shut down all of the dispensaries just in Denver, it would require virtually the entire DEA budget for a year. So you see that personnel and resource problem. And again, when you think about a drug raid, you know, if you've ever watched one, you've seen a video or seen it on TV, you have two DEA agents and 47 local cops and sheriffs. Right. Well, when you take away the 47 local cops and sheriffs, those two DEA agents, you know, they get a little, they get a little bit more reluctant to go, uh, to go blaming into places. So, right. you know, this, this really demonstrates the problem that the federal government has uh, with personnel and resources. And the beauty of all of this to kind of tie back to what we were talking about before is it really nullification doesn't necessarily require having a politician with a particular, uh, liberty philosophy to pull off. You can do it in terms of single issue coalitions. Uh, so you can bring people together who may not have any desire to you know, have liberty in the big picture, but yeah. say they don't like surveillance. Uh, you can get a bunch of people together to push back against a uh, surveillance law uh, to get warrant requirements or things like that without having to sell the whole big concept of liberty. You can get people that care about firearms together who may not like sanctuary cities, but they'll sure as heck do it for for firearms. Yeah. Uh, you can get people together that, uh, you know, favor hemp. And so you can build these coalitions that cross party lines, that cross uh, broader philosophical boundaries and work together to get things done that practically advance liberty. And to tell you how well that is, has grown over the last several years, in 2019, we had 85, I think it was 85 or 86 pieces of legislation that in some way pushed back against federal power that were passed at the state level. So, oh, wow. you know, and 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 then, like I said, the beauty of it is you don't have to. It, it doesn't have to be Republican or Democrat. I can get Democrats on board with nullifying certain things. So no matter yeah. what the makeup of your state legislature is, you can find issues that you can push back against the feds. And it doesn't require having you know uh, all of these I, uh, philosophically pure folks in office. And and uh, you know. Politicians are manipulatable too. So, you know, there's that. You can put pressure on them and get them to do things that they might not necessarily want to do on an issue by issue basis, uh, yeah. even if they don't buy into the philosophy. So that's why I really like this approach. Um, it's it's something it's I've seen the practical effects of it in the first place. And it makes space for liberty. You know, legalizing marijuana isn't going to make us all free tomorrow, but it's that many fewer people that have the potential to be locked up in a cage. Uh, you know, so that's a good thing. That's a movement toward liberty. Definitely. Yeah. And that's uh, something that I uh, uh, hear locally that I, I've kind of found was there was a couple of years ago, an amendment to uh, uh, the Minneapolis city uh, charter 
that they were looking to get passed that essentially they, they wanted police officers to have to pay for their own insurance. So uh, if they get, uh, what is it, basically, if they end up having to have a big payout because they abuse someone's rights or they beat the, the crap out of someone, um, that essentially the cop is ending up having to, you know, pay for that out of his own pocket. Uh, and I found it was so interesting is, is that the people who work on that are uh, really dedicated people, really good people, and I didn't agree with them on a damn thing except that one thing that we had come yeah. together for. And that was that was it. Other than that, I mean, we couldn't have been more different on pretty much every other position. But we uh, we got a lot done. I mean, we haven't gotten that amendment passed, but we, we've come a long way. So, you know. Well, and it, and it sure looks like it would have been smart now, given the given the current circumstances. Right. <laughs> yeah, that'll, sure. that'll give you a shot in our yeah, I had a similar experience too. In in uh, I recently moved to Florida from Kentucky and was involved in um, some local activism on surveillance and ended up getting myself sued by the city on an open records request. And um, the ACLU was generous enough to represent me in that lawsuit. And I got to know several of the people there at the Kentucky ACLU and it's, you know, the same story. There were, there were a lot of things that we would disagree with on philosophically, but when it came to open records and surveillance, we were right on the same page. And I had an interesting conversation with one of the staffers there one day, you know, and and we were talking about broader political philosophy and whatnot. And, and she was amazingly open to, to the libertarian message, the Liberty message uh, on, on a lot of levels, you know, and I don't think I converted her, but there's certainly a, a, she's going to be much friendlier to a libertarian the next time she runs across one because of our interactions. I'm, I'm pretty certain. So, you know, again, moving people, moving that, uh, I hate the term Overton window because it's become kind of this cliche thing, but it's true. You know, if you can move the, the center of the conversation just a little bit closer to Liberty, uh, that's a that's a positive gain as as we move forward. So yeah, for um, sure. I, I, that's one of the reasons I love those kind of single issue coalitions because it does it fosters cooperation and it brings people together. And you realize, you know what? You're not. It's not that you're a horrible person. We just disagree on on these certain issues, and and we can find common ground and we can work to make the world a better place. Yeah, most definitely. Um. Well, do you have any uh, uh kind of closing thoughts on the subject here? Well, if people are interested in what we're talking about, I would definitely encourage them to check out what we're doing at the 10th Amendment Center over at 10thamendmentcenter.com. It's all spelled out. And if you go to blog.10thamendmentcenter.com, you can actually see a lot of the activism that we're doing. Not doing a lot right now because the the COVID thing is foobarred the entire state legislative sessions for this year. But uh, but just recently uh, found out that... Um, uh, it was in Louisiana. Louisiana just expanded their medical marijuana program. Uh, and, and so that's a, another, another win for pushing the bar of liberty a little bit closer and, and further nullifying the federal prohibition of marijuana. Uh, it, it's always fascinating to me to see that even when you get little steps forward, like Louisiana's medical marijuana program, when they first passed, it was awful. In fact, when they very first passed it, which I think was like 20, 12 it was so bad they couldn't even implement it <laughs> like they wrote really? the law wrong they made it they had it so that um that 
uh, medical marijuana had to be prescribed. And of course, that gets into pharmacies and that gets into federal law controlling pharmacies. So then they had to go back and rewrite it so that it was to recommend marijuana. Um, and so they did that. And, and But it was still a really limited program. And the law that they just passed, instead of having qualifying conditions, uh, they've just made it so that a doctor any condition that a doctor determines that medical marijuana would be beneficial before the physician can prescribe that. And it also right. included, uh, passed another bill that added some protections from, uh, from legal recourse under this state's normal marijuana law for doctors and patients and physicians. So, you know, you see something bad and, and our tendency as libertarians, a lot of time, I think, you know, it's like we have the, the purity test. We do the same thing with legislation and we'll say, oh, that didn't go far enough. We should just we shouldn't we shouldn't legalize it. We should just decriminalize it completely. Well, yeah, <laughs> I agree. But when it comes to legislation, you have to kind of push forward step by step. And, and so I want to encourage people when you see something that, you know, maybe a step forward, but not as many steps forward as you like. Take the slice of bread and then. Let's then we can cut off another slice. But right, yeah, I always love the way Jason Stapleton, uh, the way Jason Stapleton always talked about about it. it it's a game of inches, uh, you yeah. know. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, just as as long, it, it doesn't matter how far you're moving toward liberty. If it's an inch, if it's a centimeter, as long as it's moving in that direction, you know, I'll take it. So, I, yeah, yeah, that's actually a Thomas Jefferson quote. Is um, it? And, and oh. Michael Michael Bolton found it the other day. I, I can't remember it verbatim, but in, in essence, he said, "Liberty has gained gained in inches." Oh wow! What, I did not know uh, that. What Jefferson said. Yeah, nice. I'll uh, I'll email the I'll email that quote to you, the full quote, because it's in our uh, we used it in our upcoming nullification report. That's one place awesome. I think people can go if you really if you've never heard about this stuff before. Uh, if you go to the Tenth Amendment Center website and and uh, check out on the you know the two toolbars on top. You can get a copy of our nullification report. It's a PDF. Uh, it's about 60 pages and it goes over the philosophy and the strategy. And then it actually goes through issue by issue where we've uh, built legislation and, and made progress. So if you want to check that out, if you're more interested in learning more, uh, that's a great free resource that we have over at the 10th Amendment Center. Definitely. Yeah. And I, um, well, and I uh, kind of extol your guys' virtues on the show all the time. I think you're doing fantastic work. Um, and then I'll just say too, uh, down in the description of this video, when I post it, I'll have links to the 10th Amendment Center. I'll link to your blog. Uh, I'll link over to your site, mikemeharry.com. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll link to that, the uh, uh, the nullification PDF you're talking about. And I'll make sure there's yeah, uh, nice, yeah, nice, easy access to all of these things for everyone uh, who is watching this video to go check them out. Because uh, like I said kind of in the beginning, I mean, you guys are doing work that is uh, really pushing the needle towards liberty in a way almost no other uh, organization that I know of is right now. I think it's fantastic. I'll give people another thing. You know, if you're thinking about sending $500 to uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, don't do that and just send it to the 10th Amendment Center. <laughs> yeah, what is it? Just like two bucks a month, I think, it, it, and you can become a member. Yeah, two dollars, yeah. uh, less than $2 a month in membership. But, you know, it is amazing, and I, I don't want to – to ramble on too much longer, but just thinking about the amount of money that is spent on a presidential campaign in the billions of dollars. Imagine yeah. what you could do with those billions of dollars with state and local activism, putting it in the hands of people who actually know how to get things done. And I'm not just saying just the 10th Amendment Center. I mean, there's other folks out there that are doing doing great work. The, the um, 
fully informed jury association that talks about, you know, that really pushes jury nullification. Folks like that, send them a little bit of money instead of uh, wasting it on, you know, some politician somewhere that's just going to trample on your rights. Or like the Free State Project (laughs) is a great one, I think, too. Uh, Yeah, Free State uh, Project. Yeah. Uh, various institutes. There's there's all kinds of places out there that are grassroots doing incredible work. Uh, Restore the Fourth is a is a is a organization focused on surveillance. Antiwar.com. Uh, if you're if you're passionate about you know ending the empire and the warfare state. Yeah, definitely. So, all right, that's my spiel. Cool. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Thank you very much for your time, Mike. Uh, and so yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll be putting links to all of that stuff down in the description of this video. Go check out the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, they're a, a fantastic uh, uh, resource for both information and practical knowledge. So, uh, Mike Meharry, thank you so much for joining me here today on Categorical Imperials. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Yep. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today. Uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning into the show. Uh, I hope that you guys enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. I want to say thanks again to Mike Meharry for taking the time to talk with me today. And if you check the description, uh, you will find links to the 10th Amendment Center's website, uh, their blog, their recent State of the Nullification report that Mike mentioned, uh, as well as links to Mike's own personal homepage uh, and links to where you can find all of the fantastic podcasts uh, that he puts out. And I would... Uh, recommend people take a moment to uh and join the 10th amendment center's mailing list uh so you can always stay on top of uh, upcoming state and local legislation in your area we're supporting to help advance the cause of individual liberty in a way that can make a real difference rather than relying on the political masturbation of national electoral politics and hoping that one vote every couple of years is enough because it's not. And uh, also, uh, if you're not a subscriber to this podcast, I would ask you to take a minute and do that as well. Uh, I'm not putting videos out right now on a set schedule, so subscribing, uh, make sure you always know when I post new content. Finally, I would ask that if you like this video, take a minute and just share it with two people who you think may also like the video and find it interesting and help me to grow the channel that way. And if you hated it, uh, take a moment and share it with two people who you think may also hate it uh, because I'm a masochist and your hate gets me off. And if you guys would do all that for me, I would sure appreciate it. And I will be back soon uh, with another installment of Categorical Imperatives. And as always, de lenda es Carthago.